Welcome to Making of Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to write his dissertation and get a job. And I'm here with Henry Schmidt, who is my colleague at UC Berkeley. He is a grad student in the History of Science program. And we just had a really fascinating conversation about the history of milk, but my recording uh, 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 died on us. So we're coming back and we're going to talk a little bit uh, while we have time, um, I think, about uh, my favorite element, nitrogen. Um, and I I'm, I'm, uh, wrote a, a conference paper about the history of gunpowder, and it's really interesting to me because gunpowder, uh, uh, we just think of it as kind of something that people make, but it has a really interesting composition. The big thing about it is, is this element called saltpeter, uh, potassium nitrate, um, and it comes from poop. Uh, the way that you make it is is basically you you soak poop in in, in water or urine and then this 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 crystals form. But that's what makes gunpowder. And I, I I start to think about nitrogen and everything, and it's this gigantic gigantic topic. And if I ever get to write a book, it will not be on nitrogen. But if I get to write three books, my third book will be about the global history of nitrogen. Maybe uh, Henry can tell us a little bit about the history of nitrogen chemistry. Is that does that sound good? That sounds fine. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us, like I know when I when I just gave the story about what saltpeter is, right? And I said saltpeter is potassium nitrate, right? And I we know that that means that there's a certain sort of balance of of potassium and nitrogen and oxygen, right? Yeah. But how did we come up with this thing called nitrogen? Like, did people always know about it? Like, or like, when did when did people know that such a thing existed? Yeah, it's, I mean, there, it's a good question, and there there are two answers or two parts of the answer to this question. One is the history of chemistry, right? yeah, and the history of chemical objects. Yeah. So a lot of historians of science like to say, well, the history of the science, or sorry, the history of science is the history of new kinds of objects that we see in the world and manipulate. Okay, and the other part of that is why is nitrogen in many ways, the most important element of the 19th century. Yeah. Now, it's ridiculous to say that an element is the most important of a certain century, but it's certainly the one that chemists seem to think about the most. Okay, let's go to this thing about new objects, because that blows right. my mind. Like, how, like, you, by new objects, do you mean, like, an iPod, right? Or, like, like new kinds of, of tools? Well, we could say, for example, that an electron is a new kind of scientific object. Wait, but no, the electron's always there. Well, the electron may have al may have always been there, right? Yeah. Some people actually say that it's it's kind of meaningless to say that. But instead what we could say is, well, the electron doesn't exist as a kind of an object of meaning yeah. until we're able to see it in a sense, right? Until JJ Thompson in a in a in a laboratory in Cambridge yeah. is able to discover this thing that he calls the electron, right? Oh. So like like this this way of looking at history of science is saying that like what scientists do is they don't just like peel back the, the, the wrapping paper of the natural world, they make new ideas that attach to, to things in the world, right? Or, That's or to some objects. extent the truth. Yeah. I mean we could say here's a here's a kind of gross example, yeah. right? Phlegm. We think yeah. of phlegm as just the stuff that we cough up out of the back of our throats, yeah. right? What is phlegm to us? Well, phlegm is really not that interesting. Yeah. Right. You you might want to, you know, put phlegm under a microscope to see if you have strep throat or something. Yeah. But phlegm, for example, in the early modern period, or even in the Renaissance, was a, was a powerful 
object of knowledge. So phlegm was something that would give you your whole, that would give you characteristics, that yeah. would change your personality, that would define who you are, and that depending on the presence of phlegmatic influences when you were born, could even determine your gender, right? Really? So this is a, this is a situation which phlegm and the kind of object that it is, yeah. or the kind of meaning that it has, changes significantly over the course of history. Yeah, right? and we still have that kind of language, right? When you say that somebody is 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 melancholy, you're talking about this object that used to have power, which was called black black bile. Yeah, yeah. another one of the humors. Another one of the four humors. So when you right. say somebody is, you can't call somebody phlegmatic. Um, and what's the there's there's another there's another word that's 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 in general terms. sanguine yeah sanguine you say somebody sanguine you're not saying they're bloody you're saying that yeah. their blood is a big hue like, or, or choleric or, is the other yeah, one yeah, yeah. But, okay so those object those are objects that had power in that era and don't have as much power now but there's a big difference that that the electron exists and 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 is real and those guys were wrong. This is, the, this is the interesting question that historians of science like to ask, right? Yeah. We like to think that, for example, the fact that people thought that phlegm was one of the four humors that could determine all of these features about your life, we prefer to think that they weren't just dumb, yeah. right? That they didn't think that because they were idiots yeah. or that the reason why we know about electrons is because, you know, we're geniuses, yeah. right? Uh, the question of whether science has progressed is an interesting question. It is something that a lot of people take a lot of different stances on. But this idea that they were dumb and we were smart, yeah. you know, if we think about that enough, it makes us realize, and this is called the pessimistic induction, yeah. <laughs> that in all likelihood in a hundred years, we'll be just as dumb, we'll seem just as dumb as, as, as all of these, you know, phlegmatic natural philosophers were. That's how I feel about when I look back on my on my teenage years. Exactly. Pessimistic induction. Yeah. Okay, so 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 a way of 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 rethinking that is this is this way of seeing scientists as making new uh, as bring as creating new objects. And let me explain that yeah. really briefly just yeah. to just to clarify. One of the I think very powerful ways in which somebody has talked about this is this philosopher named Ian Hacking, yeah. right? And he calls them styles of reasoning. Yeah. And he says new styles of reasoning give meaning to new kinds of objects, mm. okay? So what that means is that we could have a new kind of object like say uh, a statistical average, yeah. right? What is the likelihood that you are going to crash your bike today? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so that as an object doesn't make any sense to somebody before, say, 1600, yeah. right? They would say that's meaningless. Yeah. And so what, what, basically what Hacking's argument is, is that there are actually particular ways of thinking that make things candidates for truth or falsity. Okay. So it means, you know, it's not that it's true or false, that you have this particular probability of crashing your bike. Or that I that I that I that I have a choleric humor. Right. Yeah. It's that there's a particular way of thinking that actually allows you to evaluate whether it's truth or false in the first place. Okay, so let's let's just another example is uh, 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 astrology. So a lot of people exactly, pick yeah. a, open up the the, the, the the newspaper and read their astrological sign, and that is a way of 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 categorizing uh, uh, of being able to make true or false claims that some people don't share. Do some people do not think that that style of reasoning? Style of reasoning, you could say. That yeah. That's that that style of reasoning is appropriate. Okay. Right. So let's talk about this new object, N nitrogen. 
Yeah, the exactly. Most important element of the 19th it's century. It's actually a great transition. Yeah. Because we can see that in chemistry in yeah. the 18th century, we have these elements like nitrogen, yeah. right, that come out of this different kind of chemical conversation, which yeah. talks about different kinds of objects. Yeah. And it has these tables of these different kinds of materials that have different kinds of affinities with each other, right? Okay. Which is to say they influence each other in ways that you could almost call astrological, okay. right? Okay. And so out of that, we have this thing that we call the chemical revolution. Okay, so right? I'm just, I just want to, there's, there's, that, that, that is a weird moment in chemistry. And I'm just trying to remember. So like when I'm looking at, at chemists in the 18th century, they often use astrological signs to, exactly. to, to represent things. And often when I'm reading them, they, they, they refer to objects that I don't think exist anymore, like aqua or vitae or stuff like that, yeah. like things that, 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 that we don't have anymore. Mm -hmm. And so in this time period, they're, they're, is it closer to alchemy what they're doing or is it? I think that's an open question. I, okay. there, there, there definitely were people who called themselves alchemists, okay. right? And they, you know, somebody like Ian Hacking would say that they had a style of reasoning that's associated with similitude. Okay. okay? And we no longer think in terms of similitude. Yeah. Similitude doesn't allow us to evaluate whether something is true, true or false or not. But for them, there's there's uh, uh, this thing called the doctrine of, uh, of signatures in medicine. Exactly. Which, which basically, you know, you hear it with home, uh, homeopaths. Yeah. You know, if you get a snake bite, you should eat an herb that looks like a snake. Exactly. Because God yeah. has created everything yeah. and gives little clues about how useful things are by making things look alike. So exactly. there's, this, there's this sense that, that, that you can kind of like think your way through chemistry by looking at like how different qualities are similar. Exactly. Right? Okay. That's the old stuff. Let's talk about the new stuff and talk about this new object, this new sets of objects. So we yeah. have this 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 thing circulating nitre or nitrogen. Is it what what's it called in, in the 18th century? Well, actually, in France, they, in France, they called it azote, azote. which means non-animal. <laughs> okay, that's um, pretty broad. The irony, of course, is that nitrogen becomes interesting to people in the 19th century exactly because. It's the one thing that we always see in flesh, mm. right? It's the thing that we think of as the necessary precondition of having a body. Yeah. So that's something that I'll talk about in a moment, about Eustace Liebich. Okay. Okay. But however, this moment with, in the 18th century, right? Yeah. The so-called chemical revolution. Yeah. Right? That's associated associated with a bunch of French guys, okay. right? One of them's Lavoisier. Everything's associated with French guys. I know. All the all the stuff that uh, we want to have podcasts about, at least. <laughs> um, but the long story here is that we can say there's a slow transition yeah. from this kind of alchemical thinking mm -hmm. into this moment where basically Lavoisier says chemistry is going to be reformed. Yeah. Okay. We're only going to talk about certain kinds of things. Yeah. We're only going to use certain kinds of practices. Yeah. And part of this was honestly a process of social differentiation. Mm. Chemistry and alchemy made use of all sorts of different kinds of craftspeople, of apothecaries, yeah. right? And they were able to bring their great amount of sort of craft experience to yeah. bear on chemical knowledge. I mean, I think of people in the 18th century who'd have like a local pharmacist or apothecary who would make up weird things like aquavitae. Exactly. Whose job yeah. it would be to, to manufacture all this weird stuff by doing what we would think of now as like, you know, meth labs. Yeah, basically. You know, 18th century meth labs. I, yeah, I mean, you know, one of the great sort of pharmaceutical objects was Terriac. Right. What's, this, what's Terriac? <laughs> we, well, we can make a brief detour into okay, Terriac. Yeah, tell me about Terriac. Terriac is, uh, is this phenomenally complicated uh, pharmaceutical 
sort of lump of matter that they would create ceremonially in Venice all the time. <laughs> and Venice was famous for its teriyak, and it had opium in it. Okay, I was gonna I was gonna say it's either opium or like some sort of lacquer that makes you vomit, or it, both. Exactly, yeah. Was I it mean, both? Well, it it had a bunch of different recipes actually. Okay. There are, there are a number of pharmacopoeias that give slightly different examples. And anyway, the long story is that. This was a, a, a tremendously important pharmaceutical object. We don't really quite know what it is. Well, well tell me about the recipes. What what sort of recipes do they have? Like, you left me hanging. Like, so so there's a bunch of recipes for teriyak. Well, they were they were. A lot of our knowledge of how people would do what we would think of now as chemistry at this time come out of these pharmacopoeias. Okay. Right. And so they're all they have all of these things like you know you have to distill all of these the essence out of all of these different kinds of materials and. Uh, it makes really very little sense to me. Okay. I'll be honest. Okay. okay. So we have we, we. So part of what Lavoisier is doing is he is making a claim that what chemists do is different from what apothecaries do, right? Yeah. Okay. So I think that a useful term for understanding this moment is it's something like standardization, mm. right? Which is to say, when we standardize, say, our cars, yeah, it means that we have interchangeable parts, yes. right? And then. In this case, or say when we standardize our measures, yes. it means that we all are using the same measurements so that we can essentially correlate or compare the measurements that we make in ways that are reliable, right? So what we can say is that uh, one of the things that Lavoisier is doing in chemistry at this moment is he's saying we need to have a discipline of chemistry that talks in the same language, right, and that has the same practices that allow us to talk about different materials in a single way. Okay, right? so so the Lavoisier view of making of doing chemistry, right, says right. that water is H2O, two parts hydrogen to every part oxygen, right? Right. Today, there's an unscientific sort of idea of what water is floating around, which is from homeopaths, right. who say that water has a kind of memory that cannot be standardized or distilled or broken down, or Vis made visible by any sort of material process, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, so they're, the reason why chemists and doctors get pissed off with homeo uh, homeopaths, one of the reasons is that they are going against that Lavoisian uh, uh, approach to chemistry that, that that what an object is should be standardized. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So the homeopath's idea of water is, in a sense, not a scientific object, yes. right? In the way that we were talking about scientific objects earlier. Okay, okay, yeah. so this is the, 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 the chemical revolution. How sure. do we get to, to, to delicious, delicious nitrogen? So nitrogen is one of the elements, right, that are associated with this, this new language of chemistry, mm -hmm. right? It's one of the classics. Yeah. It's one of the originals. It's one yeah. of Lavoisier's original ones. Because and he's he's trying to make gunpowder, which has high nitrogen content, right? Yeah, and yeah. all of this, all of this late 18th century chemistry, right, is actually interested in these very material questions of war, especially, mm. right? Mm. So my question is, um, we see in this moment this new language of talking about elements. So what is an element? What is nitrogen? Yeah. Well, Lavoisier says basically, and a lot of other people echo this, even while they're debating about what these things actually are, that an element is essentially something you can't break apart anymore, mm -hmm. right? It's, 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 it's kind of the, the, the degree zero of decomposition. Yeah. And so chemical methods were all these different kinds of decomposition, right? Okay. And they were expensive and they were hard to do and they required fancy instruments that broke all the time. Yeah. And they, that was because in order to make this decomposition useful, right? 
you had to be able to measure the outcomes. Yes. You had to be able to weigh them. And, and something we know about a lot of the, the, the elements that make up stuff in everyday life is that they're really volatile. Right. Um, not you know, volatile in, in, in the everyday sense. Nitrogen's a good example here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> nitrogen's actually volatile, but but like calcium, like you try to figure out yeah. what bones are made out of, well, you'll get a metal called calcium that burns as soon as it touches oxygen, right? Yeah. So so there's this they have to do a lot of like weird stuff to actually decompose everyday objects into their elements, right? Yeah. It's and really that's hard. expensive and difficult and takes a lot of knack. It okay. does. Yeah. And nitrogen's a key example. But the important thing about this moment is that Lavoisier, in winning the so-called scientific revolution, right, yeah. basically consigned all of his rivals' theories to the dustbin of history, yeah. right? Joseph Priestley, right? His idea of phlogiston, yeah. gone, right? No longer valid. Yeah, we don't talk about phlogiston yeah. anymore. Yeah. yeah, phlogiston is 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 uh, is for the homeopaths. Yes. 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 No. 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 Nobody. Nobody has claimed to have a phlogiston theory. Yet. We'll see. Maybe it needs to be rehabilitated. Okay. However, so we have this new idea. You can get a second idea. job as a patent medicine person, you know. I know, yeah. If the maybe. history stuff doesn't work out, you can you can make you can make Dr. Schmidt's phlogiston pills. I was actually going to say phlogiston pills. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you yeah. know. Okay, so it feels like that's a little bit what I'm doing in my academic career anyway. <laughs> yeah. So we have we have we have we have the the, the uh, Priestley goes into the dustbin of history. I want to get to the nitrogen. Give me the nitrogen. Here's the nitrogen. Yeah. Okay. We have this fancy new set of uh, of, of elements, right? Yeah. They circulate. We think of chemical change as they basic. They circulate. People start to use them in, in talking about what things are. Right. People start to, to, to say, what is that? Well, it's not uh, air. It's not water. It's two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And this is a classic history of chemistry, right? Yeah. They talk about the theories that they have of these things. And my interest in this is actually not so much in the theories of chemistry and what's going on in the labs. Yeah. My question is, how do we get to the point where we can talk about the whole world around us, the environment, our bodies, as not things that have qualities or things that have these different kinds of functional relationships, yeah. but as mere objects of matter, of, of chemical content, yeah. right? I mean, if you think about it, What's the, the one of the most alarming and the most important, probably, single scientific images of our moment is that hockey stick graph of CO2, yeah, right? Yeah. And so how do we start thinking about the idea that there is these circulating sort of elemental units, right, that can get out of balance? Yes. Yes. That's a question that you don't go to Lavoisier to, although he did have some theories about what he called animal chemistry uh, and he was, of course, very important for figuring out the content of the air. Yeah. There's this German guy, Justus Liebig, okay, and he's the he when wrote these he? two when, books. When, when, when about? So is he is he at the same time in the late 18th century? He's, he's about 50 years after. Okay, Lavoisier. so he's mid 19th century. Yeah. Okay. So in the 1840s, so he let's just let's books. big difference in 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 the world now. We're going from uh, you know thatched roofs, houses, and 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 wigs to factories yeah. and smog in the air and big industrial concerns in Germany, where where Liebig is is from is having a bit of a renaissance. It has a a, a, a a form of academic production that is that will eventually become the model for the academy all over the world. Exactly. Right? That's and really important. They're getting really, really good at 
the sort of, 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 of practices that would go into the, the, the Industrial Revolution. So they are one of the people who are starting to get factories, and soon they're going to uh, uh, be at the forefront of what's called the Second Industrial Revolution. Right. So that's, that's our position. We've, we're, we're, jumping, right. we're jumping to a new place in a new time. Yeah. Okay. So Liebich, yes. this character, right? Yeah. It, what you describe is actually really important. Yeah. Lavoisier, he's an aristocrat, right? He gets he, his head chopped off. He in the gets revolution. his head chopped off in the revolution, yeah. right? He's rich. Yeah. He's and his 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 investigations into in, into saltpeter into into nitrogen, um, they don't come about as as part of like a, a a research agenda at a university. They come about because the state gives a a a big uh, 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 they have a contest. To see who who can do who can who can manufacture saltpeter the best, which is a very like old regime way of finding <laughs> knowledge, is to have a big contest, right? Exactly. Okay, so we're we're in a different world. Yeah. So Liebich, yeah, you know, not so much a natural philosopher, yeah. a scientist. He runs a research lab at a university. Yeah. He in a sense invents the research lab. Okay. He has all these students who he's training. Yeah. That are doing analyses. Of these random things for him all the time, right? Yeah. Analyses of milk, analyses of plants, what does analyses that mean, analysis? of soil. Like, like, like analysis. I, mean, I, I just imagine them looking into through a, through a, through a, through a, like one of those handheld magnifying glasses, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Analysis is a, a term that we associate with what Lavoisier thought the core practice of chemistry was, right? Okay. Which is pulling something apart and weighing its contents. Okay. Okay. So 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 Liebig has this this process where he's just break, he, he has all these grad students working for him breaking stuff down and weighing it. Basically, okay. yeah. Okay. So now he has all these elements that allow him to say, well, blood has this many parts carbon, this many parts hydrogen, this many parts oxygen, yeah. this many parts nitrogen. Yeah. And plants have, you know, this many parts whatever, yeah. right? So in a sense now, everything in the world is made out of the same stuff. Yeah. Right? So this creates a lot of different sort of strange ideas, right? Yeah. So one of the things about Liebich that I really think is, is kind of fun is that he has all these passages where he says, you know, uh, plants are chemically identical to blood, right? <laughs> he, he might have been a little bit off with his numbers there. Yeah. But he has all of these ideas of things that are the exact same, yeah. right? And so, you know, blood is the same as milk. So milk's purpose... Milk is actually just rearranged blood in yeah. a sense, right? Yeah. So the purpose of a mother's milk is to reproduce her blood in the body of her child, right? Yeah. And so, that, you there's know... A, there's a weird kind of mysticism there, right? There like, is. Like when you think of, of, of this process of decomposing things and weighing them, it doesn't... It feels very dry and very by the numbers, but here you get this kind of... Um, almost an oceanic idea that because the elements that compose our bodies are all the same and in roughly the same proportion that we're all kind of just the same kind of soup. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it, it, that might be a reason why a lot of historians of science aren't really interested in this stuff, yeah. right? I mean, they talk about theories, right? They yeah. talk about hard science in labs. Yeah. But when you start talking about things like, you know, the chemistry of, uh, you know, a farm. Yeah then it, become, it it starts to look very different, yeah. right? And so one of the analogies that these people are using is that it's actually not that different from an economy, mm. right? So we have these these kind of you know units that are conserved, it that are exchanged. World. It being it, the world. It being literally everything, everything that's material. Everything material is kind of like an economy. In that it's a constant process of exchange, yeah. right? Yeah. And so 
that has a lot of sort of strange implications, right? Yeah. It means that we can think of, or I'll use an example, Leon Playfair, right? A liberal MP in 19th century England, a student of Liebig, right? Yeah. Translated his work. Yeah. He was also a member of a commission for the Irish famine relief. Mm-hmm. And so there's Remember in, 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 in the 1850s, I want to say, bad with dates, uh, 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 Ireland had a really big problem because the potato blight uh, eradicated the large staple crop and it led to massive uh, 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 starvation, death, depopulation, and immigration of people in Ireland. And the British imperial state was interested in this in, in various ways. So, right. So Playfair's studying this. And he's saying, how do we give them relief? Yeah. Right? So there's this extraordinary moment in a British health exhibition in 1884 where a number of people have essentially decomposed foods, yeah. right? They separate their parts and they put them in jars so that you see a layer of X, mm. a layer of Y, right? A layer of Z. Mm-hmm. And you can see their proportions. And it does this for all these different foods. And the idea is that it shows that all of the foods are actually the same thing. Mm. But there are different amounts of each kind of component in it, mm-hmm. right? Relatively speaking. Yeah. And Playfair points at it. He points at milk. And he says, that's an Irish body. Right. That's how we think about poor relief is we think about the Irish as, you know, uh, just groups of chemical elements that are the same as any other that need to be replaced. Yeah. Right. And so that helps us determine how we can most economically provide the food adequate to sustain this particular material composition of the Irish body. So just to just to just to reflect this back on 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 this metaphor of of chemistry as economy. Right. Part of the idea about liberal political economy in these days is that what you need to do is lift all restrictions so that things can circulate because then there will be this providential benefit to everybody. Exactly. The invisible hand. What does that mean in practice? Well, it means you got to take, uh, you got to let the, the wheat leave Ireland because people wanted to buy it for, 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 for a lot of money in, in, in places like Britain and let the Irish people eat potatoes. That's the natural thing to do. That's the thing that kind of God wants. And why? Because wheat and potatoes are roughly, you know, they're, as the economists would call them, uh, 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 what's, what's the, what, what the, the, the contemporary econ- uh, uh, economics term for, for, for replacement goods? Replacement goods? We'll go with that. Yeah, yeah, replacement goods. They can replace each other. They're, 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 you can swap sure. them out. Yeah. I can have a hamburger tonight, or I can have a steak, or I can have a tofu burger. They're all roughly the same. Yeah. So there's this this way in which that mysticism that we were talking about with Liebig, right. that everything is kind of uh, all mushed up together, yeah. is makes the individual or the, the local useless or attenuated. Is that is that right? Well, I would say, you know, what you're describing is almost a kind of liberal vision of chemical economy, yeah. right? Just let it all sort itself out. Yeah. Providence will do it. Yeah. It's self-organizing. Yeah. God will save us, yeah. right? Well, as you might expect, that was actually exactly the point of contention between liberals like Liebig yeah. and, say, socialists like Jacob Molshot, yeah. right? Who, who they disagreed on how we were supposed to allow this to happen. I mean, the irony, of course, is that Liebig said, well, we need to let this economy circulate, right? Yeah. What we need to do is not intervene, yeah. but support the maximization of the circulation of elements, yeah. right? This is what's best for... Um, Life, yeah, basically, and this brings us back to nitrogen. Yes. So, so the irony of that, of course, 
is that it actually requires a lot of intervention to make sure that the elements keep circulating, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so that's that's something we can come back to. But the point is, nitrogen's crucial, right? Because in this world of circulating elements, nitrogen is the one that we see in every body, yeah. right? Flesh always contains nitrogen, yeah. right? Plants always contain nitrogen, yeah. right? So there's a distinction between two kinds of materials in this kind of chemical environmental vision, yeah. right? There are plastic materials, which is to say those that contain nitrogen, yeah. and there are those that don't, yeah. and those are combustive materials. Yeah. And so to come back to Lavoisier, right? Lavoisier thinks that respiration is actually a kind of combustion, yes. right? Well, that's what we're doing. We're essentially burning the material in our body, right? By invoking CO or bringing in CO2 and putting out, uh, or sorry, bringing in oxygen, sending out CO2, and this process of combustion maintains body heat. So right? we, we, we have a similar sort of division now when we talk about carbohydrates and proteins, right? You get sort your of. energy from carbohydrates. But, but so, so nitrogen's really important practically for farmers because they need to manure their crops. It's they, not combustive, exactly. It's not, okay. Uh, uh, so so Liebig like, like is involved in figuring out how to actually do this hard work of adding nitrogen to, to the system, right or wrong? Yes. Okay. Well, he's concerned with this question. Yeah. He's concerned with the question of how do we do, uh, how, how do we how do we regulate nitrogen in a yeah. sense, right? Yeah. So now that we have these individual things called nitrogen, we can think of nitrogen as having its own kind of system, yeah, or its own kind of logic, right? Yeah. And so suddenly people are saying, well, nitrogen is required to create plants, right? Nitrogen is a key component of fertilizer. Yeah. What does that mean? Does that mean that if we let's think about it in mercantilist terms here, yeah. right? In yeah. economic terms, yeah. if we as a nation only export nitrogen, yeah then we'll become infertile. Yeah. So this panics people, yeah. right? Liebage is totally wrapped up with these debates about, for example, all the poo that's flowing out the River Thames, yeah. right? That poo contains nitrogen. Yeah. That poo is a kind of national treasure. Yeah. So and there's this is the time when they're having wars in the Pacific over over control over guano islands, exactly. which, have, uh, uh, which are used uh, uh, for their uh, 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 sodium nitrate content, which they use to fertilize crops. Exactly. And also for some explosives. So yeah. suddenly, poo becomes this incredibly important national security concern. Yeah. Right. And it, it, I, I want to. I uh, we're we're, we're going to have to close because you have yeah. to you have to go very soon. But I just want to close close with 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 thinking about today. Because you said that at the time there was kind of a a, 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 a fight between liberal chemical economists and socialist chemical economists that, that some people just want to think to let everything flow out right. uh, uh, a laissez-faire approach to nitrogen and some people wanted to control it these these mercantilists right but we have that today in 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 our discussion about the Anthropocene. Because part of the debate right now is what we, we understand that we have all these hockey stick graphs of the mm -hmm. amount of carbon in the atmosphere increase and the amount of nitrogen in the, uh, in the nitrogen cycle. Uh, 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 there, one, one paper is called spiraling, nitrogen spiraling out of control. There's the yeah. sense that we have lost control of these particular natural processes. But right. the debate is what to do. Right. Do we control them by force of the state? Or do we like leave, you know, let God sort it out? Do you see this this sort of 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 of, of mirroring in, in, in the situation in the nineteenth century? Am I completely wrong in that? I think uh, there is a, a bit of a mirroring here. For example, the Haber Bosch process, right? Yeah. Which basically pulls nitrogen out of the air yeah. for use as fertilizer. Yeah. Right? That is something that these people didn't have any idea could exist. Yeah. So they were intensely concerned 
about the correct balance of the chemical composition of the world, yeah. right? They were willing to go to war with Sicily yeah. over the fact that Sicily wouldn't trade in its sulfur deposits, yeah. right? So Sulfur is needed for gunpowder. Like, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so this is a, an issue of great concern for these people, right? And so how do they go about doing it? They go about these new kinds of, for example, um, you know, state recycling uh, projects, right? Yeah. Where we need to actually take all of the sewage runoff of London and put it back into our fields, yeah. right? So this is something like a kind of early example of the environmental consciousness that we have now, yeah. right? After the Haber-Bosch process, suddenly there's this idea. Nitrogen becomes cheap. Nitrogen's yeah. cheap. Yeah. Nitrogen's everywhere. Yeah. We don't have to worry about nitrogen. Let's yeah. just, you know, shoot it into the soil, let it run into our rivers, and forget about it, Yeah. right? And so the, it's kind of like coal in many senses, right? In the 19th century, coal is something that people are saying, well, we don't want to switch to coal because coal will run out someday, right? Horses will reproduce themselves, coal won't. Yeah. And these are all sort of questions that we've forgotten yeah. or questions that at a certain point we stopped asking. There, there's a feeling in the 20th century that we live in a cornucopia, that, yeah. that, that there's no limit to the material world. Yeah. Um, but in the 19th century, they're still thinking in a world governed by material constraints. Right. Um, but what's hard about that is the 19th century is the age of imperialism. Like the the, the solutions that they chose are not exactly. very touchy feeling. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The solutions yeah. that they chose is that they sent ships to the coast of Peru yeah. and, you know, sort of forcibly acquisitioned these guano islands. And there we see the beginning of American, you know, territorial expansion in the Pacific. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Anyway, you, you have to go to a meeting, but thank you very much uh, uh, for joining us today uh, on Making of a Historian. Thank you to uh, Duncan Barton for our art, and thank you to Jonathan Lear for our music. If you like the show, as always, rate, us, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, tell your in-laws. In-laws love the show. My mother-in-law listens to the show. I think Sarah Stoller's father-in-law listens to the show. If you are an in-law, Listen to the show, tell me, and you will get a shout out. Uh, thank you very much again. I'm so sorry uh, that you all, my audience, did not get to listen to our fascinating conversation about milk. We will have Henry back on in future, and we will try to reperform it. Um, be back next Tuesday with Elena Schneider, who will be talking about the Siege of Havana. See you.